You're listening to the One Day Advice Podcast, where your hosts, Nick Riley and Paul Henderson, are going to take you for a ride inside the world of personal finance. Together, we're going to give you a fully transparent, behind-the-scenes look into the financial services industry, helping you to optimize your financial life along the way. This is Paul Henderson, and I'm sitting here with Nick Riley, and today we are going to talk about something I think is a pertinent topic for all ages, really. What do you need to know about buying a house? We are going to cover at a high level some lender requirements, four key things that you should know when planning for that new home, and then finally how to actually save for that purchase. In future episodes, we'll we'll cover more of the discussion around renting versus buying, a little more on the actual logistics of working with a lender, and touching on some alternatives to direct real estate investment as well. But today, we really wanted to keep things at a high level for those of you who are maybe doing this for the first time or really trying to just understand at a high level what you need to know when you are when you're going into one of the biggest purchases in your life. And you know, we've gone through this process before both personally and we've uh, helped facilitate this process with lenders, real estate agents for our clients in the past as well. So we're going to draw on some of that experience and uh, hopefully add some value to this process for for those that are looking to uh, maybe buy your first home, but even those that are uh, maybe looking to buy a second home or a rental property as well. Yeah, we can definitely draw on some experience. I think we've both seen things go incredibly smoothly and then also blow up in people's faces. So we've seen quite a lot, I think, as as financial planners. Absolutely. And, and, and too, and just talking about the whole financial planning, uh, you know, overall, I mean, you know, investments are not the only way to to build wealth. Uh, we look at real estate as a great way to accumulate wealth alongside uh, if you're, you have the, a tendency to want to build businesses or whatever, uh, you real estate is a great way to uh, build equity and, and you know, build up savings towards retirement. Uh, we all need a place to live, so you shouldn't look at that that main primary residence as as an investment. Uh, but if it if it happens to make you money along the way, then that's just a, a great bonus. It's a good point. We always look at this as your your home is your home, and if it happens to make you money, that's great. But it's it's at base, it's your home. So let's let's go to some lender requirements, just basic rules of thumb for approaching buying a house. And if you've Googled, what do I need to know about looking for a house or what will lender give me for money? You've probably seen some ratios. And the two we're going to talk about just briefly are the front end ratio and the back end ratio. And these are the rules only in name that I think they're, they're guidelines. And depending on where you go, you'll see slightly different ratios, but we'll say for the front end ratio, that is referring to your monthly housing payments. Uh, they call it PITI or PT, however you want to say it. Monthly principal, interest, property, taxes, and insurance. You take that number and you divide it by your monthly gross salary. So super simple. What you would pay for your housing divided by what you make gross at your job. That is the front end ratio. And most banks are looking for something at about 28% or less. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, a lender is wanting to make sure that you have the healthy balance sheet and the healthy cash flow to be able to pay off that loan. Uh, you know, lenders are trying to make money; they they don't want you to default on your loan. 
uh, that just adds a whole lot of uh, extra complexity. Uh, but you know, they want to look at you as as a, a good a good borrower, and you know that can come through borrowing history, uh, your credit score, but also through these these uh, ratios that we're discussing. Generally frowned upon by the bank to default on your loan. They they would like to make money, not not lose it. So front end ratio, you might be asking yourself, well, yeah, but I have more payments than just my my housing payment. So does does the bank not care about that? They they do care about that. And that brings us to the back end ratio. Your target for that or the bank's target is generally 36%. So what is the back end ratio? Back end ratio takes your monthly pity. I really have no idea if it's PT or pity. So I'm going to go with pity. <laughs> then you add your other monthly debt payments. And that can be student debt. It can be uh, auto debt, auto loan, that type of thing. You sum those and you divide that by your gross monthly salary. Now you have your back end ratio. And so this gives the bank a little more idea of basically the amount of debt that you have out there that you're you're trying to service. You know, And some interesting things is they actually look at only at debt that's extending more than say 10 months. So for some people, if they have a car payment that they're going to finish paying off in 11 months, maybe wait just a little bit, that might improve that ratio. So there's some little things you can plan around on on for that one. But in general, front end ratio, just your your housing expenses, they're looking for 28% or less. Back end ratio, all debt payments, 36% or less. That gives you, you're basically, you're inside the box and banks love it when you fit inside a box as a borrower. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, so, you know, not only, you know, housing payments, but, you know, looking at car payments as well, uh, credit card uh, payments, you know, any, any sort of consistent debt payments uh, will be included in those ratios. And, and it's important to note too, these are, these are guidelines. They're not hard and fast rules uh, either. And each lender will have their own, uh, underwriting requirements. So generally we've, we found that the larger the bank or the, you know, the larger the lender, the more stringent the underwriting process will be. Uh, so the more requirements they'll have, the more, I guess, conservative requirements uh, will be in place. And, you know, that's why, you know, you know, if you're really close to not qualifying from a cash flow or assets perspective, uh, maybe going to a smaller regional lender uh, who might be able to dig a little bit deeper into your situation and be more lenient on some of the underwriting requirements. And uh, yeah, I was just going to mention too on the income side. You know, while talking about these, you know, you know, different size of the lenders and the banks and stuff, your income you know, really matters when it comes to the debt to income ratio. Because banks are going to look at your income and look at the guaranteed portion, typically. So that's going to be your salary. So for we work with a lot of clients uh, who have your stock compensation, signing bonuses. Maybe they make a commission, or have you know they're in sales. They have a lot of variable variable pay. Uh, some lenders won't uh, won't consider variable pay as uh, a portion of the income, which can completely throw off your debt to income ratio. So uh, for instance, like if you have a $100,000 salary, uh, but you are expecting to make another 50,000 in other variable pay, 
and they only consider 100000 for your overall income, that's really going to reduce the amount that you can borrow and pay on a monthly basis. Yeah, that ratio doesn't suddenly looks a lot different if you're looking at 100K of income versus 150. You know, and anecdotally, I'm just picturing from clients I've worked with in the past, it's, it's, really, it's kind of fascinating where you go to one mortgage person or mortgage lender and they're like, oh, I can't touch this. I just, it's not something that I can get through underwriting. You go to another one and maybe they're an independent and they've got a little more flexibility in who they go to for lenders. And they're like, oh yeah, I can do this. And I've seen situations where someone could pay cash for their house, but they saw the interest rates were so low and they're like, ah, long-term I want this. And they now can't get a mortgage, even though they're an incredibly safe person to, to lend money to. Uh, there's, it's, there's definitely reason to it. I, I don't think it's always correct reason, but you, know, you can look at it and say, okay, you probably need to work with this type of mortgage broker. You need to work with maybe a less traditional or, or something. There's, there's definitely, I would say, always shop around when you're looking definitely. at mortgage brokers and what you can qualify for and uh, what, they'll, what they'll give you. On that, what you can qualify for note, Another thing, so we've we've covered debt to income ratios, the the what income looks like and income qualifications when you're looking at qualifying for a mortgage. There's also the issue of affordability. And in this, banks make money by lending money. And if you are a, a if you qualify for something, they will want to give you as much as you will take, basically, because they're like, ah, you are a safe person. I will make money by giving you money and then you pay me interest. So they're not looking out for afford your affordability for your bottom line. They, you know, if you have no extra cash flow at the end of the month, they don't care. They're getting their payment. So we always counsel clients that you should really be choosing your your housing payment not based on what you can qualify for, but really what you can afford. And that's a more complicated conversation, but super important to to keep in mind, particularly in some of these. You know, the San Francisco, the Seattle, the New York, some of these housing markets where it gets kind of crazy quickly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I I mean, that's where having a financial planner in your corner too uh, helps in, you know, the lender might say, yeah, we we think you can afford this size alone. Well, they're not going to be asking the questions about your short term goals, uh, other expenses that you have coming up. So they're going to be looking at specifically this loan, this purchase. And you know, that is that is a, only a small piece of the puzzle for your financial life. So uh, if you're considering uh, you taking a sabbatical or, or you know, moving abroad or, or you're changing careers, uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mention to a lender that you're thinking about changing careers or doing it if you're trying to secure a loan. They want to know that you're going to be consistently being able to pay off that that loan only if you don't want them to give you money exactly uh, if you don't want them to <laughs> want them to lend you money uh tell them you're you're going to be taking a, a taking time off you're going to be taking a pay cut uh and all that good stuff but yeah the affordability side just because a lender says you can afford something doesn't actually mean that you can really afford it based on you maybe some of your short-term goals uh maybe you know uh, educational savings for your kids so it's important to look at the big picture around affordability the lender doesn't care if you are going on vacation this year or not they they, yeah yeah, they're not looking at quality of life for you definitely so okay affordability the other one this kind of leads right into i think our last of 
the the four things to think about here uh, down payments. And I think most of us have heard traditionally you put 20% down. That's just, it's what you do. And it, it's frustrating if you're talking to someone who's got a, a few years on you and you're like, yeah, but your, your first home was under a hundred thousand. Um, yeah. <laughs> that, that's a, that 20% number is a lot smaller. Like if I'm trying to put down a hundred, if I'm trying to, yeah, all of a sudden we're seeing down payments that are over what over a hundred thousand. So yeah, that can be a little frustrating sometimes. I will say 20% down helps you avoid having to pay insurance on. So it, it can lower your monthly payments. But if you're looking at, I'm going to use Seattle as an example. If you're looking at Seattle as a super hot market, you might be saying, by the time I've put away 20%, I, I'm now even further behind because the properties have gone up so quickly. So I think we we want to acknowledge the fact that 20% is traditionally the the conservative correct approach that has kind of been changing and you know Nick do you want to yeah. opine on that Yeah I mean I can just use the Seattle market and just cuz I saw this number uh, very recently but the average home price in Seattle is $793,000 and you know that's including the surrounding Seattle area so if you're living in you know Seattle proper it's it's definitely going to be much much more expensive than that but even that itself, I mean, that's $140,000 for 20% down. And, you know, a lot of people in you know, buying their first home might not have that, uh, that around, but they have the income to support the loan process. So that's where the cash flow really comes into play. And, you know, 20% for the longest time has been the traditional, uh, largely because, you know, you put you know, less than 20% down, you might be responsible for primary mortgage insurance or PMI. Uh, which tax on an additional cost to to that mortgage, but uh, it really kind of depends on you know, your cash flow situation, the amount of cash you have on hand, on whether that twenty percent makes sense or putting more down uh, toward in, to in, to decrease the monthly payment amount. Or uh, you know, I've seen plenty of, and I've done it myself too, of doing like a 10-10-80 split where you do 10% down, uh, 80% on the mortgage, and then another 10% on a HELOC, which a HELOC is just a home equity line of credit. And you know, that, that's an interest-only loan uh, that allows you to you know, put less down initially, but then have that flexibility to pay down that HELOC faster, use that for home improvements or you essentially have a line of credit that you can use towards improving your home. So there's a lot of different nuances and strategies that that lenders specifically will be able to kind of walk you through. And you know, back to Paul's point, and always make sure you have a, a few different lenders that you're talking to. And kind of a, a general rule of thumb: in, include a larger lender. Uh, in that, so, so you know they'll have a more stringent underwriting process, but you likely will get you a better rate, uh, and then include a regional lender, uh, and then maybe an online lender like a Better Mortgage or or uh, you know Rocket Mortgage. The service for an online lender isn't going to be nearly as good. So if you're really in a competitive situation for securing financing for a home, uh, you know a seller. If you're looking to buy a house, so the seller is going to look at you in in terms of being able to pay uh, to get that money uh, by closing, and you know working with a a credible lender 
is going to improve your chances of winning out against you know other people that are trying to buy into that home. So it's it, I, it's a it's a fun process. I love talking about the home buying process, but we'll definitely have a lender uh, come on and interview them on this podcast just to give you a little bit more detail on the ins and outs of that uh, lending process. Yeah, I'll just throw in there as a, a taste. You can get an idea of how complex this can get. Where you know we're talking about traditional conforming loans and that's where you will where you want to put down 20 percent and that type of thing you can also get into so the HELOC and piggybacking like nick was explaining then there's the federal housing administration fha loans and in that case they'll finance up to 96 and a half percent of the home values now you're paying three and a half percent down that one comes with mortgage insurance premiums which is mip and i'm just saying this because i love the fact that fha loans have mip traditional loans have pmi they couldn't call it the same thing. It's just another <laughs> acronym. Yeah, I get kind of a kick out of that. But yeah, the point of, of this, I think, really is someone will, can quote you a mortgage rate and an amount, but that is not your answer. It's not the number that you will get from everybody. So yep. shop around, look at all of your options, work with someone to see if it's your first home. Is there a first home buyer's credit that you're going to qualify for? Really do that due diligence to make sure that you are your taking advantage of everything that you can and also getting the best deal that you can on that insurance uh, on that interest rate. Yeah. And I think one mistake people make is, is feeling like they're married to one lender and you know, lenders, it's, it's a very, it's a transactional process. So they're used to cranking out a lot of different loans. Uh, you know, if, if there's someone specifically that you work well with, uh, you know, still get a quote outside and, and, and if they're a good lender, they will recommend you getting a quote elsewhere as well, because it gives them negotiating power internally uh, to say, you know, you know, in order to close this loan, you know, they're also getting an offer at that, uh, you know, so and so bank, and you know, can we match that? So they're able to go to the underwriters and try to match that. So either way, it gives you negotiating power, and you know, to as it as kind of top of mind, uh, you know, in, in considering lenders as well, if you work for a large employer, there may be certain banks that have specific relationships, uh, or direct relationships with that employer. So for instance, Amazon, you know, large employer, uh, across the globe. And, you know, there's certain lenders that have direct relationships with Amazon that will consider variable pay. So, you know, you know, any stock compensation, any variable comp, uh, they'll consider that in their underwriting process. So it's important to look at certain lenders. If you're kind of on the cusp or on the you know on the borderline of being able to qualify for a certain level of home, uh, you know from a, a lending standpoint, then definitely look around, and it's worth the extra time. Yep, I'll just add one anecdotal story. I've, I've- definitely had the experience where I'm talking with one broker for a client and then talk to another one. And first one will just say to me, yeah, I can't like, I can get this through, but it will be incredibly high. And they want to continue working with, with me and my clients. And they will flat out say, I'm not going to be your best deal. And you know, they can't necessarily tell me who will be that best deal. But if you have a good relationship that that broker should be able to tell you basically yes or no, can I, can I do this for you in, in a good way? So I feel like that's a, an important thing, particularly also like if you're working with a financial advisor, they should have that network and something that that is, should be something that you can tap into. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And uh, as we're talking through this, I'm just thinking of all the different little 
uh, levers that you can pull in the home buying process. I don't know how many to mention on this on this <laughs> podcast, but it it might end up being you know further episodes. But uh, I'm just so give I'm me just an thinking, example of like two. <laughs> yeah. So so one. I mean, if as a buyer, uh, being able to potentially negotiate uh, you know selling costs and closing costs into into the deal. Uh, so you know, being able that that will save you more money out of your pocket up front. Uh, that you could just wrap into a loan. For for instance, uh, if if you're looking at a million dollar home, and you know that's the that's the price that it's listed at, maybe you offer a million and ten thousand, and include uh, ten thousand in closing costs from the seller. Well, you know that equates to about a million dollars uh, on your end, but you get to finance the full million dollars and ten thousand uh, as part of that. So, and then you're not having to use out-of-pocket expenses for all those those closing costs as well. So that saves you a little bit more money up front in having to you know, use some of your additional cash to pay down those closing costs. So that's just a little nuance that comes into. And that's something that your, that your real estate agent specifically will you'll use in negotiating. Uh, the other thing is, so in considering, we, we touched on the debt-to-income ratio previously, one thing that's that's important for those who are looking to buy additional real estate. So if they already have an additional mortgage or an existing larger debt payment that they're responsible for on a monthly basis, it's very important to note the structure of that loan in the sense that how, you know, it it depending on the loan, it's going to affect the size of your debt payment. So for instance, a 15-year mortgage is going to have a larger monthly payment than a 30-year mortgage. And if you lock yourself into a 15-year mortgage, you might be doing the, the prudent thing in, in, in paying down your loan faster, but that increased you know, size of monthly payment is going to uh, you know, take up a large portion of that debt-to-income ratio. So you actually qualify for less of a loan potentially for that additional property. And that's something I, I've come into uh, you know experience personally and with clients as well. But uh, you know if that 30 year option uh, reduces the monthly payment, you can always make excess payments to that on a, on a monthly basis. but the lender is not going to consider those excess payments towards principal as part of your your monthly debt obligation. They're going to look at the minimum of what you have to pay, and you know that's a big factor in in kind of qualifying for different sizes of loans. Okay, now I want to do one too, but <laughs> just go for it. <laughs> I think we can. We'll talk about savings at the end, but frankly, it's a pretty quick conversation, um, and it's not too too groundbreaking. So I, I was just going to add, and I think oftentimes people don't like to talk about this because we're Americans and we're all self-made. But when you're talking about financing, I think it's worth mentioning that there's also the concept of intrafamily loans. And great point. Yeah. That is for a lot of, for people who have parents or family members who are looking at them saying, I really want to help you some way. The uh, house purchase is often one of those key areas where they're like, hey, my my parents or my family member did this for me when I was young. I now want to turn around and provide the same to you know, the next generation. And there are some pretty good options out there. 
um, like basically if you're trying to move money to the next generation an intrafamily loan is one of the best ways to do it as far as it's not going to impact their their estate tax or is not going to impact their gift tax returns if you're paying a minimum rate I don't know what it is off the top of my head right now but right I want to say it's under under one and a half percent and you can structure that loan in a maybe it's an interest only loan maybe it's a 40, 50, like maybe it's a very long-term yeah. loan. You can keep that payment down low and it gives your your family member the ability to get assets out of their estate. And then they can also forgive that loan over time and they can use the the annual exclusion amount. So it's it's this is more of an estate planning tactic, I think, than a, a true how to buy that first house. But yeah. if you're looking at buying a house and you have family members that have offered to help in some way, keep in the back of your mind that it could be a helpful conversation for them and their plan to know that you can pay a very low interest rate and it helps both of you. So yeah, you know, it's, there's more complications there, but I think it's, yeah, it's think worth you, bringing up. Yeah. You bring up a great point too. And, you know, a couple, couple things to add to the family loan or gifting side you know, keep in mind a a loan to a family member is is from the, a lending perspective. If that's how it's structured, they're going to look at that as an addition to your debt to income ratio. So uh, that's that's another debt payment that you would be responsible for, and that may impact your uh, your you know ultimately you know, your ultimate loan amount that you're that you qualify for. So a lot of lenders will will say, I mean, lenders don't specifically, like if it's going to be a gift, they aren't going to write a letter to the IRS saying like, this is amount of a gift. Like the gift is that's, that's what you're responsible for, or your, your parents or a family members responsible for reporting. Uh, so you, you know, and each lender has their own requirements around, you know, some will say, well, like only 5% of the, of the total home value can be used from from gift money, and then other lenders will will have you know, much more conservative values on that. So they'll they'll be a little bit looser on those on those details where they might allow the full down payment to be uh, in the form of a gift. So there's a lot of things to consider around the gifting side that that both Paul and myself have had a lot of experience uh, discussing with clients. So feel free to 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 email us directly or, or call us. Uh, with questions around that. And and I'll move on from there. You just got a slight taste of what happens when Paul and Nick go way off of uh, the kind of original <laughs> bullet point script, but you can tell we, we enjoy talking about this stuff. And there's, there's just so many, uh, let's call them planning opportunities when you're talking about major purchases and interest rates and gifts and estates and all the stuff that uh, we get to nerd out on occasionally. So we've got, well, we're over time, but I'll just to to live up to our original outline, I'll I'll, I'll just say our savings approach for the, okay we're supposed to go all the way back to that down payment. How do you put money away for that down payment? First thing, know your budget, and that's partly know where you can trim in your monthly but spending to save for that down payment, and that's just your basic savings advice. Secondly, you also need to know what essentials need to stay so you can say okay once I actually own this home, what is my budget going to look like? And that gives you basically the ability to say, this is what a comfortable, affordable housing, monthly housing payment looks like. So at a high level, just 
start tracking your expenses, know roughly what's going out each month. And that gives you the freedom to choose to change that or not. If maybe, maybe you don't need to change a thing, but a lot of people come to us and they've never thought about what they're actually spending. So knowing your budget and then know your timing. And again, high level investments are wonderful. The stock market is a great thing long-term. It can be less great in the short term. And when you're talking about a house purchase, usually when we're having that conversation with people, it's something that they're looking at in the next year, two years, something like that. And again, your situation might be slightly dif different, but in general, if you know that you have a, a large expense coming up within the next year, next one to two years, that should probably, that should be close to liquid, whether it's cash, cash-like investment or something. The worst case scenario for me is that you have your dream house, you're looking at it, your offer's in, and the market has a correction and your down payment just vanished. And you know that's a slightly extreme example, but we, we would like to avoid that. So yeah, I'll just, yeah, know, know what you're spending. And if it's money that's going out soon, that should be liquid and very um, not at risk. Yeah. And you don't want to stretch yourself out too thin and the home buying process. It's, it's a great experience. And if you set a budget for yourself for, for say 500,000, uh, be honest with yourself. It's probably going to creep up higher <laughs> because as you're, as you're looking at houses, you're always wanting, wanting to really maximize what you can afford. And that's where having, uh, you know, a true financial planner, uh, in your corner, being able to, uh, assess that situation for you and really find out what you can truly afford based on uh, your other financial goals as well uh, is very important. And like we said, future episodes, we'll talk more about should you even be buying? So rent, renting versus buying, again, the logistics of working with a lender in a little more detail with, with an expert, and then alternatives to direct real estate investment. So if you really want that investment in real estate, but you're not certain that owning the, the house is the right way to do it. We'll talk a bit about what your options are in that case. Hi, I'm Nick Riley, the founder of One Day Advice. If you like what you've heard, we'd greatly appreciate your help in spreading the word. After all, we are financial educators, not marketers. Thanks for listening and remember to leave us a review. Nick Riley is the founder of One Day Advice, an independent registered investment advisor. Paul Henderson is the director of financial planning at One Day Advice. Both Nick and Paul serve as wealth advisors to their clients. All opinions expressed by Nick, Paul, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of One Day Advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment or financial decisions.